So we're going to take one last look at John, one last look at John 21. We read most of this chapter last week, um, but this will be our final installment in our undeniable study. I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this. I can't believe we're done with it. It's the longest we've ever spent in one book, um, which I don't think we're worse for it. I think we're far better because of our time in John. You'll hear these sermons and these scriptures preached again probably someday in the future. Um, Some of them bear repeating, I'm sure, but we've enjoyed our time and we'll be beginning something brand new next week. Uh, But we already did a much larger recap of the time, our our time in John, when we kind of hit the climax of the story, the cross, resurrection. We kind of look back at all that John had told before. We'll do a little bit of that tonight, but we've already kind of done a recap of what we've studied so far. Um, But the last few verses of John 21 serve to emphasize a few key themes that John's already um, taught us about and put up there as important. And John kind of brings them back to the end of the story, brings them back in, uh, because he hopes these stick with us forever maybe more than the others. Um, If we don't remember every story in John, and if you have forgotten, you should start rereading it because they're so good. But if you don't remember every story in John, John hopes that we at least remember this story and these truths. And our lives might be forever impacted and changed by these, uh, these blessings that we've got from this book. But we left off with Jesus confronting Peter. Now, he's not mad at Peter, but they haven't really talked since the whole denial thing. Three times um, the, night, the day before or the day that Jesus was crucified, Peter and Jesus haven't talked. Um, Peter you know, has, has encountered Jesus, but there hasn't been this one-on-one conversation that we know is coming. Uh, but he's not here to bring him shame. He's here to restore him. Because Peter has a special place in this group. We've already seen that in the story. As they try to go about their normal lives, Peter is clearly the natural-born leader of the group. He and seven of the disciples are just spending time up in Galilee. They've left Jerusalem. They've given up on the whole Jesus movement because they think it's over. They try to go back to normal. And when Peter goes fishing, they go fishing with him because he's the leader. They're They're trying to follow somebody. And Peter is the one that fills that void that was left when Jesus um, was taken. So Jesus has bigger plans for Peter and, of course, for the rest as well. And he has plans for Peter that don't involve him resorting back to his old profession. Remember, we talked last time that John 21 is really a parallel of Luke 5 and the other Gospels that give this account as well. It's a parallel of when Jesus and Peter first met. Uh, Peter, out on the boat fishing all night, doesn't catch anything. Jesus preaches a sermon on the shore, meets Peter, says, hey, how about trying again? Peter says, you're not a fisherman, you're a carpenter, but since you have preached a great sermon, I guess I should take your advice. He casts the net, and they bring in more fish than the boat can handle. Of course, that story is almost repeated in chapter 21, which I think was intentional to trigger their memories of what Jesus meant to them and who Jesus was and what he had called them to be, who he had called them to be. Uh, Again, John 21, as much as it repeats something old, it also represents a new beginning. A new era has begun. We've we've covered this. Um, Jesus has risen from the grave. He has set in motion this new resurrection reality. Things aren't like they used to be. Things are never going to be like they used to be. Death has been defeated. The Spirit of God is going to fill hearts. Jesus teased the disciples by breathing on them the Holy Spirit, a preview of what was to come on Pentecost. He told them their lives would never be the same. Yet Peter and the rest go about life as if nothing spectacular had just happened. Again, we can read the story and think and be critical of them, but they didn't know what we know. And even though we think, well, they should have known things weren't the same, they had just encountered Jesus back to life 
on a couple occasions. But again, they didn't know what we know, but we learn from their story, so hopefully we don't make the same mistakes. They go about their lives as if nothing spectacular had just happened. In a sense, Jesus' visit to them is to remind them as a group, to remind them that if they don't get this next chapter right, nobody will. Do you hear that? Jesus comes to these guys and says, listen, y'all, I know y'all don't really know what to do next because things are brand new, and I'm here to remind you, but I think we can kind of step back and see our own self in this story. He reminds them, which is the earliest of early churches, the disciples, not even the whole group. He reminds these disciples who know everything there is to know about Jesus at this point. No one else knows. They hasn't, haven't started the movement yet, but Jesus is getting them ready for it. He reminds them, if they don't get this next phase right, then nobody will. And how detrimental that would be if nobody would have heard the story of what they had just witnessed with their own eyes. But I think we can hear what God is saying to us through that same idea. If the church doesn't get it right, what hope is there for the world? Hello, now I'm not being, you know, you guys are here on a Sunday night. You guys are doing the best you can do. You're, you're trying to get it as right as you can. God bless you. But I say this to the broadest of churches, to everyone who, named, who claims Jesus as their Savior, who claims heaven as their future home. If we don't get this right, what hope is there for the world? Get what right? Everything. Worship, stewardship, obedience, the mission that we've been sent on. We set the standard for the rest of the world. And it's easy to get in a position of finger pointing, isn't it? The Bible never does that. The mirror is always placed in front of the church, even though we're tempted to point to the world as the problem. Even and especially when the gap in the world is great, the church is who is held accountable. There's something that Jesus, this is something that Jesus established early and often in his ministry. When he began to build the church, remember this mission statement, that he, this identity that he cast on them way back in Matthew 5. He said, you are the salt of the earth. Y'all, it's plural, so he, he wasn't southern, but I am. Y'all are the salt of the earth. Now, in these days, there was no refrigerators. Y'all know this. We've talked about this. There were no refrigerators, so how did you preserve meat? You salted it to death. Now, we still salt our meat, and that's why we have cholesterol problems. They salted their meat. They salted their meat to keep it, to keep it you know, from getting spoiled. So you see what Jesus is saying? You are the salt of the earth, as in the world is rotting and the world is decaying and the world is corrupting because of sin. This internal essence that is in everything and in everybody and everywhere. The world is rotting. The meat is spoiling, but you can sprinkle salt on it. You can't save it. You can't make it something that's not, but you can preserve it. You can give it a second, third, fourth chance. You can help it last as long as possible so that God can make an impact. You see what he's saying about us? We are the preservative of the earth. But what does Jesus say in that scripture? But if the salt has lost its taste, he doesn't say if the, if the, if the meat gets you know, bad or if the, if the thing rots. That's a given. It's going to rot. There's no way to save it unless the salt does its job. 
So what does Jesus say to the church there? This is early on. This is when they just got started. If the salt loses its taste, what, how shall its saltiness be restored? And he's not saying that somehow the, the church can become useless. He's just trying to get them to straighten up early and realize, wow, our position is very important. But otherwise, salt is just thrown over your shoulder and there's nothing, there's no good for it. There, there's no use for it. There's no, it's not effective. So he tells the church early and often, you are the salt. You are the preservative. You are the ones that can make a difference in the world. He went on after that. He said, obviously, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, obviously, there's, there's two ways we can take that. The ancient world, cities were built on hills so that when you were traveling from one to the other, you could see it illuminated in the night sky and the valleys and the mountains didn't hide it. You would build a city on a hill. If you built a city in the valley, you were just as much, you were considered very vulnerable um, and you would be the first that would be uh, taken over by, by, you know, invaders and marauders because there was no security. There was no way to see what was coming. On the hill, you could see because the light would shine to those that were coming and you could look down um, and the light would help you see. But the idea there is if you build a city on a hill, you want it to be seen, you want it to be noticed, you want to send out a message, hey, we're large and in charge, we're here, we're making a difference, we matter. Our lights are meant to shine. We don't hide lights under a basket, we don't put, on a, we don't put it in a corner of a room, put a sheet over it, we turn the lights on so that people aren't left in the dark. You're the salt, you're the light a city of refuge. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may. You see that, that, that you know, very important transition in the middle there? As in, if our light does not shine, they will not see something good and they will not give glory to somebody better. If our lights don't shine, they will not see and they will not give glory to fight through the Father who is in heaven. They won't ever make that connection. So our lights are important. This isn't about our arrogance or about our, hey, look at me, I'm better than you. It's about being that example that Jesus set and being that light, that vessel of hope and mercy to a world that needs some answers and needs some direction. This, in a sense, is our mission statement. Sometimes I think we just simply forget and aren't aware of our mission. We get distracted, I understand. John 21 sets a precedent that we aren't without fault when it comes to the church losing its influence in the world. It could be said, though, based on what I think we can, read from, we can glean from this text, the church has lost influence because we've given up influence. Now, I'm not saying the world has not shut its ears off, and I'm not saying that there aren't a lot of other forces trying to get people to not look at the church. I get that. That's real, but I'm representing the church, and I can't. i got to deal with my own house. The church has lost its influence because we've just let other people take influence. We've backed down. And even worse, we've compromised in a lot of ways. Well, you know, there's these other things that are important. And we give way to politics. We give way to culture. We give way to personal convenience. I mean, I could preach a sermon on each one of those, right? And y'all could too. We all know that this is true. The church has lost influence because we've given up influence. We've compromised in order to go along with trends and culture and politics and what is convenient for us. And we all have our own opinions, but the reality is the church has taken too many days off. Now, y'all haven't taken a night off, so we're, we're, we're in the right direction. But listen, 
We've taken too many days off from being salt and light and refuge in a world that is decaying, that it's in darkness, and that is hurting. Instead of fishing for people, we went fishing for everything else. Jesus' conversation with Peter reveals to us some key things we must keep front and center if we're going to maximize every opportunity and redeem every day for God's glory. So who doesn't want to maximize every opportunity for the kingdom of God? Who doesn't want to redeem every day for God's glory? So we need to pay close attention to the conversation that Jesus has with Peter that begins in verse 15. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? More than these. Now, I think he's talking about the fish. He's looking at the 153 fish that God gave him. He didn't get those from the world. The devil didn't give them to him. He didn't make a deal with the devil and say, hey, give me some fish. Who gave him the fish? Jesus gave him the fish. So this isn't trying to say that all worldly things are bad and all material things are bad and that God doesn't want you to go fishing. That's not the point. This is Jesus trying to see what is more important to Peter. Do you love me more than these he said to him yes lord you know that i love you and then what does jesus say if you love me tend to my sheep so notice jesus says if you love me the church is where your focus is now that's not my preachery you know doing that's jesus right doesn't don't you see that jesus equates himself with his flock Anybody, if you ever want to, somebody comes to you and says, well, you know, hey, can you be, you know, do you have to be a church member to be a Christian? Listen, church membership physically in the the literal sense is symbolic, but come on. Jesus literally equates himself with the flock, doesn't he? So that's a pretty easy connection to make in a pretty easy way, I think, to convince somebody, hey, Jesus says, Peter, if you love me, you'll love these, you'll be with these, you'll be in a community with these, you'll look at them as if they are your own. So that's pretty important, I think. Jesus asked Peter a very specific question. Do you love these more than? He doesn't ask Peter to denounce his love for the fish. That's not what he does. He does not ask Peter, you better renounce your love for fishing and your love for all things material and all things physical. If you don't denounce it, you're not mine. That's not what he says. He asked him a very important question. I want to make sure I say that because sometimes people make it out, make out like, you know, you've got to go out and live and, you know, you, you've got to detach yourself from everything and be completely disconnected from, from, from life. And, and that's obviously not what God wants us to do. He wants us present in the world doing a job for the glory of God. Do you love these things more than you love the things of God, the people of God specifically? Again, Jesus points to the fish in the first instance. Then I think he points to Peter's friends, the followers, the disciples in the second instance. Again, this isn't saying that we can't enjoy the blessing God gives us. Indeed, Jesus had given Peter those 153 fish that day. But consider what love means in the context of the Gospels. Where are we first introduced to love? And and really, well, not the Bible chronologically, but when you think of God's love, we all think of one verse. That's it. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world that he gave the world something. So this is God defining his love for us. God's love gives. God's love puts others in a place of advantage. God's love is a humiliating kind of love, a humbling kind of love that empties his heart to fill others' hearts. 
and thereby he is refilled by seeing his children be filled because his heart is set on others. So you see that the definition of love that we have from the most famous verse of the Bible that John himself also wrote, God so loved the world that he gave his son, that whosoever believes would not perish but have everlasting life. So in that frame of mind, the word love used in 3.16, used here when Jesus asked Peter these questions, is the word agape in the Greek. Now, most of you know that uh, there are several different Greek words for love. I should have up here on the screen for you to see that love is the Greek word agape. Now, here's my definition of agape. It's an expression of preference. It's an expression, it's, as, it's an action that demonstrates I'm putting somebody before me. That's what agape love is. Now, there, there's such a thing as mutual love. Peter even uses it when he says, talks to Jesus, when he says, hey, I love him. He's using a different word for love. The, the, the word that we get Philadelphia from, phileo, which is a friendly kind of love, a mutual kind of love, a companion kind of love. Hey, hey, you like me and I like you. We're good friends, but we're not, you know, it's not a, a, a sacrificial thing. It's just a, hey, I'm looking for out for me and you're looking out for you, but we're buddies. But Jesus says, do you agape me are you willing to show an expression of preference agape is a love that prefers others and expresses that love through sacrifice so what is jesus asking peter do you prefer these over those you've expressed how much you love these but how will you express or will you express any love for my people where my heart is now consider that John would go on to write this little verse in his own book later on. Do not love the things of the world or the things in the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If we prefer, that's the key word, prefer, the world over God. Now, of course, we're, we're called to love the world. We're called to love people. God so loved the world, but the world here is in context something that's not pertaining to God, something that's competing for God's place in our life. If we prefer the world over God, we ourselves need to give thought to Jesus' word to Peter. This idea of preference. You can only prefer one, right? I mean, if I set two plates of food in front of you and I say, which one do you prefer? You can't say, well, I like both of them. A preference says you've got to choose. You can be like Jacob when he was, you know, given the option to have one wife. He said, I'll take four. (laughs) No, you shouldn't be like Jacob. He had a favorite wife, don't worry. That didn't work out good for him at all. Jesus' repetition of this question seems to suggest that he knows Peter's heart. Don't you think that when Jesus keeps asking Peter this question, he knows that Peter's kind of just, you know, wanting him to be quiet? Maybe Peter wasn't willing to confess, but I think the fact that Jesus kept prodding him and the fact that when he asked him a third time, it says Peter was grieved, verse 17, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? But Peter confirms what we already know. Peter says, do you love me? He says, Lord, you know all things. So this is Peter just trying to say, would you get off my back? You know my heart. 
You know that I love you and I love your people, and I'm just in a weird place right now. I denied you three times. I, you know, I, I kind of caused all that. I felt guilty. Now you're back. I don't know what to think. What, you know, I went, tried to go back fishing. You ruined my, you know, you wrecked my, my party, and then I, you gave me 153 fish. Now I feel more guilty because you blessed me. I was just trying to go about my life. I don't know what I'm supposed to do, Jesus. And I, I don't think Jesus is trying to, you know, toy with Peter. I think he's just trying to get Peter out of this slump he's in. Because the rest of the church depends on it. Maybe this was Peter's way of saying, Lord, I want to put your calling first, but help me in my weakness. Because I think the fact that Jesus keeps asking him over and over again, it reveals that Peter's got some doubt. He's got some second thoughts. He's got some questions. He's wondering if he can be all in. And I think that's why he says, Lord, you know all things. He's trying to say, yeah, I, I want to want it, Jesus. But help me in my unbelief. So listen to Jesus' command to Peter after this. Verse 17, the remainder part. Jesus says to him, feed my sheep. But he says, I've got more for you this time. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. Now, Jesus is kind of making a statement about Peter. Peter, you've always been a man that does not take orders. You do what you want, when you want, and that's your right. That's your God-given right to be free. And when you were younger up until now, you have walked in that pride and in that independence and in that you can't tell me what to do. You have walked in that spirit to a T. But when you are older, when you are old, you will stretch out your hand and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. Peter, I know right now if you could see the way things end, you wouldn't believe it. Not because you would think it would be impossible, but because you would not be willing to do what you will be in the future. Right now, Peter, I know you're having a little tough time trying to decide which road you want to walk down. You've seen all this. You've bought every t-shirt I've ever sold. You've seen all the movies. You've witnessed all the events. You know that I've changed the world. And you tried to go back to normal as if it didn't do anything spectacular. You're trying to go back to life as it was before because you can't fathom what's next. And G Peter, I understand that because this has never happened before. But Peter, you've got two roads in front of you. You can go down that one, and I know what you want to do, but I'm not going to quit believing that you can be who I've called you to be. Jesus, John ed editorializes and says, this he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken these things, so Jesus says, follow me, Peter. Peter, I know that you're conflicted right now, and maybe you're conflicted. Maybe somebody in the house, maybe you have been in a place where you've been conflicted as to which road you want to take. And Jesus says to both of us, he says to all of us, I know there's a lot of things pulling at you. Peter, my invitation to you is follow me. I can't make you, but I believe in you, and I've given you inspiration, and I've given you ability to be somebody better than this world wants you to be. So here's your two options, Peter. Go about being normal, prideful, stubborn you, or you can follow me. Funny, Peter had heard that invitation a little while before, hadn't he? Maybe three years earlier. 
What is Jesus calling Peter to do? He's calling him to step away from the boat and take on the role of shepherd of this early church. He's calling him to mimic his own leadership role. This idea of being stretched forth and carried where you do not wish, he's referring to how Peter dies. Now we know from history, extra-biblical accounts, Peter is crucified upside down because at the end of his life, he says, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Lord. So they flip him over and they kill him that way. So Jesus is referring to in the future, Peter's going to have a change of heart. Peter's going to see the worthwhile path to take. So he's calling Peter to take on the role of a shepherd. Jesus, of course, said back in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He says, Peter, you're going to be willing to do the same thing one day. You might not believe in that. You might not believe you've got it in you, but I do. Again, notice the key phrase, verse 18, where you do not want to go. Peter reveal, Jesus reveals Peter's heart to him. You aren't willing right now, Peter. But if you follow me, you will gain a heart of greater love and sacrifice. Same thing goes for us. If we follow Jesus, we will gain a heart of love and sacrifice. I, I think a lot of times, I think a lot of times we have these moments where we are convicted, we are confronted with truth, and we admit that, you know, I don't, you know what, I don't think I have this, or I don't even want this. I know what I'm supposed to want. I know the Bible is true, and I know that God is right, and I know that God knows God wants what's best for me. So I want what's best for me, but I'm having a hard time saying yes. Maybe you've been there. Jesus' invitation to us is the same as it's been from the beginning. Follow me. I think that's what we come away from John hearing loud and clear, louder than ever before. If we simply follow Jesus, listen to him, we will get closer, go deeper, and accomplish more for our good and for God's glory. What we learn from John, the reason John preserved these stories and wrote them down, God's word has the ability to change our lives and speak to our souls. We may be tempted to turn left or right, but like Peter confessed earlier in John 6, when he was given the option to leave, He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We know there's no other source for our heart's good, but even Peter shows us the slightest of disconnects can unsettle our faith and walk with God. Now, this last part's really rich. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, following, who also had leaned on the breast at the supper, and he said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? That's John's question. Peter, seeing him, said to John, but Lord, what about this man? Now, this is the old-fashioned, why don't you talk about, why don't you tell him what to do? This is what the devil wants us to do when God's telling us something. He wants us to look over our shoulder and look at somebody else and say, God, why don't you talk to them for a while because I think you've told me enough. Funny thing is, John was following Jesus at this moment. And Peter says, what about this guy? And then Jesus said, if, it, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And John says, well, this is the reason why people thought that I was never going to die because Peter and Jesus had this exchange. <laughs> Peter deflects Jesus' invitation. He deflects Jesus' word and throws it off on somebody else. The enemy's greatest weapon of deception that he wants us all to pick up is deflection. Deflecting what God has said to us to somebody else. Throwing off what God is holding us accountable to onto somebody else. But I love what Jesus says. What is it to you if he never dies? 
You follow me, Peter. I'll deal with John later. I'm talking to you. Again, isn't this a snapshot of the strife that goes on in our churches and between us and other Christians? We're all the time tempted to compare ourselves with others, deflect what God is saying to us to somebody else. Oh, if they would have been here, you would have told them. I wish, I, I wish there was somebody here that needed to hear that. Maybe you've thought that before. I've been told that before by none of y'all, but by others. Listen, preachers aren't exempt from this. Every word that I deliver to you, I'm accountable for, but every word that we hear, we are accountable for. And all throughout this chapter, we've seen that Peter continually tries to evade accountability. When he saw Jesus on the seashore, he jumped in the water to hide. When, he was, when Jesus was asking the questions, he kept trying to get out of answering the question. And here again, when he says, follow me, Peter says, what about this guy? We're always tempted to evade accountability, but Proverbs teaches us something that's very timeless. Proverbs 4, verse 25 and 26. Let your eyes look directly forward. Your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet. Then all your ways will be sure and certain. So thankfully, Peter does this. Peter gets, finally gets it. He so gets it that he goes on to boldly proclaim the gospel and lead the church. Later on, before he was martyred, Peter would write a letter to, church, to the church at Rome and its leaders. And Peter says this, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Peter echoes what we've just learned from John. Peter learned to remain at this place of beholding and following Jesus because he knew if he darted his eyes to the left or right, he might lose focus. There in verse 2, Peter says, shepherd the flock of God. As he himself had become a shepherd, he laid down the fishing line and took up the shepherd's staff. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. Don't you hear that word? As Jesus referred to Peter being unwilling, Peter had a change of heart, didn't he? willingly so God would, would have you, not for shameful game, but eagerly so you see that Peter was, was all in at this point in his life. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example to the flock. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. Of course, he writes this to pastors, but I think this is to all Christians. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility. Because Peter would confess, pride got me in a lot of trouble. If we remain in the footsteps of Jesus, we will never miss out on anything that God wants and has for us. Speaking of footsteps, aren't you glad that John shadowed Jesus all those years, from the Jordan River to the cross to the tomb? John signs off in verse 24 and 25. This is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know his testimony is true. There are also many other things that Jesus did, which, in, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. We could write our own stories of what God has done, couldn't we? We know his testimony is true because we've also witnessed and partook in this vicariously through John, but ourselves through the Spirit. We have come to know that Jesus is the Holy One of God. He is the Lamb of God who was slain for our sins. He is the divine blessing that gives us favor from heaven. He is the Word of God that gives us definitive and authoritative word and message from heaven. 
He is our new wine and our new platform, giving us substance and a standing that we cannot find anywhere else. And if John could say one more thing, I think he would say like he made clear in his gospel. Jesus is undeniably our Lord and Savior. May we follow him forever. From cover to cover, John has Jesus on the record giving this simple command. Way back in John 1, when John met him, he said, Jesus said to him, Come and you will see. So they came and saw. And John, as he closes his book, says, I indeed went and I saw. He said to Philip, he said to Peter, he says to you and me, follow me. And then we have once again, Jesus says to Peter, follow me. If only, if only we would follow Jesus, what we could see and what we could hear. Peter and John would blaze the trail for the early church, committing to follow Jesus' path laid out for them to witness for him in Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth. When they were arrested and tried for their faith, they were told to quit mentioning, quit standing for Jesus. The council there in Jerusalem, in order that it might spread no further among the people, they warned them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, rather to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. But we cannot but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. When we follow Jesus, we'll see so much and hear so much, experience so much that we won't be able to settle for anything less than continuing to follow him and watch him work. What an amazing story. What an amazing reminder of a life worth living. I'm glad that Peter made the right choice. And I'm glad that John was there to nudge him along. That we get to witness uh, from their story all these years later. I'm going to pray for us and then before we get out of here, if anybody has anything they want to talk about real quick or have a word of prayer regarding for our country, we will do that. Father, we love you. Thank you for this time in the house tonight. Thank you for your word that has been so powerful and so good to us. Lord, if there's anything in our hearts tonight that would keep us from following you fully and wholly, I pray you would give us an ability and opportunity to renounce those things, to put you first, to love you more, and to follow you. God, I pray you might would help us to know that we have seen and heard so much and we've still got so much more to see and so much more to hear. Lord, that we would follow you and not miss out on this amazing opportunity. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.